0: We live in the rat race. Um, it's the com- most, one of the most commonly used terms to describe um, our present age. Um, it was coined by a guy called Daniel Lang, as he observed um, some physicists um, who were, in about the 1950s, they were trying to look at whether the Germans, how the Germans had got on building an atomic bomb, And they were kind of digging around into that and maybe looking at how they could make one themselves. And Daniel Lang observed these people, and he observed these people that would get up early in the morning and that would rush to work and would leave these really, really busy lives and just be consumed by this, you know, pushing particles together with the ultimate endeavor of making an atomic bomb, which ultimately blows everybody to bits. What kind of a prize is that? And he coined this term, the rat race. He says, it looks like... This looks like a rat race. So that was 1953. I don't know if you thought the term had been around longer than that, but that's when it's from 1953. The rat race. Here's what Wikipedia says. I don't want you to think I've been lazy. I did, I did look around at this. Um, Wikipedia, it's good, it's Wikipedia. It's all right. So here's a bit of a Wikipedia quote just to make you think about uh, what the rat race is. A rat race is an endless, self defeating, or pointless pursuit. The phrase equates humans to rats attempting to earn a reward such as cheese, in vain. It may also refer to a competitive struggle to get ahead financially or routinely. The term is commonly associated with an exhausting, repetitive lifestyle that leaves no time for relaxation or enjoyment. The quote goes on, and it's a bit long, but stick with it. It gives us a good um, platform to build from. In an analogy to the modern city, many see citizens as rats in a single maze, expend a lot of effort running around, ultimately achieving nothing meaningful, either collectively or individually, breaks your heart this, doesn't it? This is often used in reference to work, particularly excessive or competitive work. In general terms, if one works too much, one is in the rat race. A key aspect of the rat race is being inflicted on the individual by uncontrollable outside forces like inherent logic pressures and incentives of contemporary business and society. This terminology contains implications that many people see work as a seemingly endless pursuit with little reward or purpose. How are you all feeling about your lives? This is the rat race. It, It feels to me, even though I'm a pastor, and I do a slightly different job that, that the rat race life, the rhythm of it, is a bit like a trap, isn't it? It's, it's like a carefully formed trap that's been sort of molded out through history. There's always something for us to aspire to. There's always, your neighbour's always going to go and get a fancier car. You're always going to see something on your phone that is just more awesome than whatever the thing you've got is right now. There's always going to be somebody who wants it more than you. Somebody's going to be in your work who wants your job more than you. There's always going to be that person, or needs it more than you. There's always going to be more money that they can print at the Royal Mint, or however you're going to make money when we move away from paper. There's always going to be more money, and there's always going to be more work. You feel like that? You're never going to reach the end of the amount of work that we can do. There's always going to be more work, and there's always going to be more that you can do and your boss will tell you there's, there's more that you can give me there's more, I more that you can do let's assess you again let's dig around at this a little bit more there's always going to be more and doesn't it feel like have you ever had that way on your commute or when you kick back on your holidays and you think about your life where you just feel like man this is how did this how did life get me like this the rat race that we're all in here's my aim and maybe you think I see where, we, I see where we're headed here I see the story that they've just told at the start. If if I agree with Jesus, if I get in the boat with Jesus, then I, all the fish will come in. I'll get loads of money. That's you b- b- take comfort. I'm not I'm not a prosperity guy. I'm not heading there. That's not how I think that it works. It'd be an easy message for me to give. Maybe we'd get like millions of people coming in if I said that's what was going to happen. But I don't think I don't think that's what's going to happen. Neither. And let's think about all we've been learning about work. Neither do I think that we should all just jack our our jobs in tomorrow and become monks living in a monastery because Peter leaves everything to follow Jesus, although that's a very good idea. I think one of the things that we've learned over the last couple of weeks is that work is God's idea. In Genesis, it's a good thing made bad by the fall. No, I'm going to talk to us about the fact that I think that we are, we're in the rat race. We're in it. We might not want to be, we might want to move to the north end of Scotland or wherever it is, and even then we wouldn't really get away from it. Even becoming a pastor, you don't really get away from it. We are in the rat race. I want to talk about how Jesus helps us think about how we can thrive in the rat race, be a light in the world that we're in, make a difference in the world that we're in, not just be consumed by it, not get dragged along by everything that it does, but I think Jesus bumps into people on his travels, It's one of the things I think Jesus does. I mean, there's there's disciples that drop everything and follow him, but there's people that look at him and realize that their lives will never be the same again. One of the things I think these fishermen see and even the people watching see, I don't think they're ever going to look at, they're never going to look at a fish, the product. Peter's never going to look at the fish quite the same way again. He's never going to, when Jesus is departed into heaven, he's never going to think about a storm or a lake or a catch. He's never going to think about those things the same way. One of the things that Jesus does to us, if we bother with him, if we let him in our lives, is he changes our view of the world. That's something I want us to think about today. How Jesus will shift our view of the work that we do. So we're going to bomb into the text. It's Luke. If you're following in your Bibles, on your phones, or we'll have it up on the screen there so you can double check out the NIV, Uh, Luke Luke 5, 1 to 11. Let's just bomb through the story and let's hopefully we'll get a bit of a sense of the scene. One day, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. I think it's Galilee. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Sometimes when you're watching a, a film, and I think this has that sense where the film director shows you this big, awesome, grand you know, big awesome spectrum, and then there's something going on in the corner that he wants to catch your eye with, but that's actually the main story. Here there's something, there's the, Jesus is stood there, and he's doing this awesome big sermon. Everyone's following him around. There's this, in this kind of amphitheater setting, everyone's listening, but there's a story going on in the corner, and that's the one that you've got to see. Out of the corner of your eye, if you can imagine it, you see the disciples, and what are they doing? Interesting, I think, this. Everybody else is listening. It looks like, it reads like everybody else has stopped. Jesus got everybody else's attention. But the disciples, where are they? They are working. It's another day at work to them. And they are, they only, we're drawn to, we're drawn, our eyes are drawn to this. They're working. They're still in the rat race. That's where they're at. They're in the rat race. They're already, Peter, Peter's already thinking, well, we didn't catch anything last night. We need to think about what we're going to catch tomorrow. So they're working. He got into the, one of the boats the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. This is an incredible bit, I think. This, and I've never been, but I've heard people that's been to this part of the world, and they say that the little bears are like mini amphitheaters, so you can stand there, and you can shout, and everybody can hear you. So the people are crowding around Jesus like mad. The disciples are working away. Jesus thinks, people are gonna hear me if I take a step back. So he takes a step back in the boat and he starts to speak. And and this is, I think this is really lovely when we're thinking about work. Peter's there, he's fished all night, he's not caught anything. He's seen this guy. It reads just like Jesus wanders up and gets in his boat. Whenever I've tried that, I find people don't receive that very well. Do you know what I mean? When you wander up and just stand in somebody's boat, people are normally quite annoyed, but Peter sees the rabbi Jesus, his famous rabbi, and and he he just lets him in with him. Peter sat there in his office, in his mill, in his place of work, thinking about the fact that he's caught nothing. And he's almost kind of already part of Jesus' team. He's the guy who's lent him his boat. And Jesus is sat there preaching, and Peter is listening to every word. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that is um, the guy who I keep referring to as Peter, Simon Peter, put out into the deep water, let down the nets for a catch, Simon answered, Master, so Peter's got, Peter already knows that this guy, special. already knows that this guy's got something about him. Master, we've worked all night. We've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. I don't know if that's hyperbole. I think the Bible's pretty straight about this sort of stuff. That's the, that's the worst night of fishing ever, isn't it? That's a bit of a miracle in itself to not catch anything. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, difficult moment. Peter's been, you, th- you think about the dynamics of this. Peter's been f- fishing all his life. He knows this place like the back of his hand. Jesus says, we're going to go out again. We're going to go out in the day, the time of day that you never catch any fish. I know you fished all night in Cornwall. we're going to go out in the day. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break so they signal to their partners in the other boats, come and help them. And they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Peter takes the kind of take that's going to feed him and his family for a year. And he's fished all night and he's not caught anything. I don't know what, I don't know how it works with Jesus. I'm, I'm of the conviction that he's God incarnate. I don't know whether all the fish looked up and thought, man, here he is. This is this is our chance to get in with him. Let's. I mean, it doesn't normally happen when you fish, but this is you know this amazing thing happened. All the fish pile into this boat. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, "'Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man.' For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, it's an interesting turn of phrases this, and I've really only just noticed this now, don't be afraid. They were. F- this was a good day. This was a good moment. Peter's thinking about where he could take this a little bit. And Jesus says to him, You freaked out. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people instead of fish. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. That's something else I just stopped to think about as I read that this week. And I'd not really thought about it for the f- before, and I've read this, like you, maybe you've read this a million times, maybe it's the first time you've read it. He's been fishing all night and he catches nothing. He's a fisherman, that's what he does for a job. He catches the kind of load that will change his life, and he's been fishing all night and he's not caught anything, and then he's got this load, and what, it's just this picture in my head of this mass amount of fish that's just left on the shoreline for other people to come up and nick, because Peter's seen Something. That's blown his working world apart, that's worth following, that's worth changing his habits for. So that's what we're gonna look at. Jesus, I don't think he asks us to leave the rat race. I think he wants us right in the middle of it. We're gonna look at the ways in which Jesus impacts society so that we see the world differently. First thing, first point we're gonna make on the screen he's got works to shape the workers. God works and shapes the workers. Peter's a fisherman. The disciples were largely fishermen. When we first meet Peter, he's in a boat. When we last meet Peter with Jesus, he's in a boat getting breakfast. Most of the stories in between. Peter's either ferrying him somewhere back and forth in his boat, or there. Peter's trying to walk on the water, or Jesus is calming the storm. He's a, he's a fisherman. Even after Jesus has gone, people associate Peter with being a fisherman. They say, when Peter denies Jesus, they say, look, there's that Galilean guy. You know, the place by the lake. There's that fisherman. When Peter is preaching after Jesus has ascended, they say, this is just an ordinary, well, this is just an ordinary fisherman. This is just an ordinary guy, Peter. Peter was an apostle. His world will never be the same again. But Jesus takes this guy who's a fisherman. I think sometimes we read the Bible, or maybe we listen to sermons, or we look through church history and think God, God's world is shaped and formed by just the prophets, just the people with the, the dog collars on. And they've kind of always been forever ordained from birth. to come out with some sort of halo on their heads. And these, these, these are the guys, these are the men and women that Jesus will use. And then you read your Bible and you realize that God Uses those people There's a bunch of prophets in the Bible There's a bunch of people that abandon everything for Jesus But God uses and shapes us from where we're at with Even with the skills that we've already got You read through, read through the stories of the Bible Think about the character of Joseph In, in, a, in a big sense he's Israel's saviour that, That's who he is you know, he, he keeps this story alive But what is he? He's a dream teller He's a servant. He's a guy who's made his way up the career ladder. That's what he's done. And he's ended up being a governor, a politician. But he's a, he's a good one. He's a wise one. Man, could we use a diligent, wise politician right now? But that's what he does. And he does it to the glory of God. And God takes this guy who's worked his way, and he works with him up the career ladder. And he, and he, he finds this guy who's got this skill set, and he's in this position of influence, and he uses him right where he is for the glory of God. Think of Nehemiah, another guy who redeemed Israel when they're out lost in Babylon, the, the guy that comes before the king. Essentially, this guy who we look at as this awesome delivery guy and think of in these terms, he's a, he's a planner, just a really, really awesome Town planet. He goes before the king and he says, we need to do this. And if we do this, it'll look amazing. It'll be better for you. Sells it really well. God's in it, of course, but he's a town planner. Those are the skills that he has. And Jerusalem is rebuilt and God's people can come back. He uses his skills. I think often in our lives, we kind of look back at our jobs and it's almost the first reason we've got for thinking, Well, I've got my job. I can't really do any more. This is, you know, this kind of is the bracket I'm in. And maybe I I do these things here. But work is, work is largely this. Work means that I do this. God, for His glory, will take us from where we're at, with our skill set, in our positions, with the things that we've learnt, and He, He will shape us if we are willing into being people for his glory, even where we're at. Maybe, maybe you maybe kind, of this, maybe kind of go, well, I'm just, work is this, and, and it's that. That's the end of it. I don't think the Bible paints that kind of picture. God uses us and shapes us for his glory right where we are. Second thing that he does, he might, so God might not always necessarily move us on, but he will give us a different view. Notice what he says to Peter in verse 10. He says to Simon Peter, I'm going to make you fish for people instead of men. Here's, here's kind of what he's saying to him. He says, Peter, you're a fisherman. You're going to become an apostle. You're a fisherman. It's in your bones. But you are never ever, and I guess this speaks more broadly to us, you are never ever going to look at the product of fish the same way again so long as you live your life out on this earth. You are going to think of people. You're going to see people. Before you see any product, before you see any margin, before you see any night shift, you're going, to, you're going to think of people. And you're not just going to think of people on their own. You're going to think of the need of people, the need of people being their God. You're going to think of their salvation story. That's what you're going to see first, people. I think the, one of the things that the rat race does to us, as we are kind of consumed by it, is it it stops us seeing people. Stops us seeing people, really, for what they are. Banksy, uh, the, the artist who we don't know who it is, and I don't know how we, we get this quote, but it's out here, a Banksyism, And his finger's pretty much always on the pulse, is Banksy. He says, you can win the rat race, but you're still a rat. Pretty poignant, pretty concise commentary on the world, as it is, I think. He says, if... You can be right in the middle of this, and you might even win it, but it's going to make you a rat. It's going to dehumanize you. I think when our toes are so far dipped in the rat race, that's kind of what it does. Notice the language that we use in business. People become commodities, statistics, competitors, targets, and markets. Have you, not, have you noticed that when you're a when you're at work, have you've, you ever thought to yourself, if, if I was at home with you, if, if I just met you in the street, or for a coffee or something like that, I'm pretty sure we'd get on all right, but in work, there's just that different, you think you're, you're a competitor or something like that. People, the way that we view people change. We've got really vulnerable people groups, in the world that we might, if we looked at people as people, we would say oh, we need to look at well, all we need to do. If we see people as people, we need to look after these people. But in language, speak in the rat race, they just become a really vulnerable, a really accessible market to be exploited. We don't, in the middle of the rat race, we don't see people well. One of the one of the darkest days, one of the best examples of people not seeing people well, would be. 1940s, Nazi-led Germany. Post-Second World War, the rat race kicked in. Germany wanted more. It had, a, it had done bad things and it had, had a very hard time and it wanted more and it stopped seeing people. It stopped seeing lots of people and lots of people stopped being seen in the war, probably more so the Russians, a lot of them didn't get seen, but the Jews didn't get seen. God's people didn't get seen and I think one of the one of the shining lights of maybe the 20th century took place in a little munitions factory under the watch of Oscar Schindler I don't know if you've seen the film Schindler's List I don't know if you know the story Schindler's List he had about a thousand Jews in his employ at a time when they were getting massacred and butchered by the Germans by the Nazis, and somehow in the middle of all that darkness and all that ty- tyranny, I think, by the, I think by the common grace that God sends down to this earth, Oscar Schindler, and he wasn't your archetypal hero, he looks alright in Schindler's list, he was a member of the Nazi party, he did all the salutes and the handshakes and the, wore the jackets, he had various mistresses, he was ruthless in business, but somewhere in the middle of that mis- slightly misguided life, in the middle of the darkest set of circumstances, I think we've known, certainly in you know, the last couple of hundred years, he saw people. And, he, and this thousand Jews, he made them indispensable to it. Was a beautiful, it's a beautiful, lovely little story. He makes them indispensable to, to the way that his factory operates, and he saves their lives. And there's this lovely ongoing legacy of Schindler's Jews who come back to the point where he's buried to say thank you today because they saw incredible compassion because he saw people. As followers of Jesus, we are called, as Peter is called, even in even in the middle of like crazy days, even in the middle of the the sense that our job's really important and we've just got to hang on in there and the rat race is coming. We are called. To keep our eyes on people, to stop seeing products, and to see people, and not just to see people, but to see what they really need, more than we're called to see anything else. And you, you maybe listen to that and you think that's fanciful, Ash. But I think, if in obedience to the, to God, I think if we live lives that see people. As Oscar Schindler saw people, as the church sometimes sees people, the world notices. The world's such a dark place, it's gonna see this if we see people. And maybe you think to yourself, I think that'd just make me really vulnerable, Ash, if I started getting all soft at work. I feel like I should toughen up, if anything else. Actually, I just can't face the idea of seeing people. I've gotta be ruthless, or somebody else is gonna get my job. God asks us to see people and to see their souls. Imagine imagine how different the world would be if we stopped seeing, if we saw profit less and people more. So God uses us where we are. He takes the work, he takes the skills and he shapes us and he asks us to see the world differently. Third thing he does is he shows us and this has been really helpful for me. He shows us that we're just people. He shows us that we're just people and that he is God. I think another one of the byproducts of the rat race that we live in is this constant need for us to try and be more awesome. Do you know what I mean? We're always assessed. We're always looked at. We've kinda, there's just this, always this need for us to try and be, be more awesome. If it's a rat race that we're in, the storyline is... We've got to be the best rat. We've got to be the most competitive we can be. We've got to undercut people. We've got to do whatever it takes to be the best. And one of the narratives that runs through our culture is this. And particularly footballers say this all the time to thousands of kids watching. They'll say something like, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And and I hear it and I go, that's really lovely. I hope my kids hear that. But there's only going to be about 30 or 40 people who make it to the Premier League from this country. You can do anything if, if, if you put your mind to it, and we have that narrative through our culture, through our working life if I just if I just try and be better, if I just try and be more superhuman, you know there 's that next thing that I want if I just try it, I, I can do that i can keep, I can get it, I can keep going and we, we live in this world, this this rat race sort of track where we 're constantly on this cycle of trying to improve ourselves and be better and be more awesome and work harder and work longer, and we do that for so long, and then we reach points in our lives where we just, I don't know, at least I have, maybe you have to, we reach points where we're just exhausted. We almost want to put our hand up and go, can I, I'd just love to get off this. We watch one of these escapism shows on Channel 4 where somebody moves to the Canadian woods and we look on it and say oh that just looks amazing because we want to get off but we realize that we can't because if we do that we can never get back in again. The rat race goes on and on and Peter has this moment, Peter has this wonderful moment that from a rat race fisherman's perspective should be the worst day of his life. This This should be the pits, he's been fishing all night when you think about Peter, he kind of appears as a bit of the dude, doesn't he? He's been fishing all night, and he's caught nothing. And then this guy's come along, who's a teacher, essentially, or a carpenter. That's what he was. And he rakes in all of the fish. If, In, a, in the machismo world that we live in just now, that is, a, that is a blow to your ego, isn't it? That should be the end of him. And Peter has this experience where all of all of his life skills all of his experiences, all of his skill sets, all of his knowledge, all, all of what he's got to offer as a human being just look like nothing as he, as he encounters God. He becomes acutely aware of and humbled by his limits. It's an, I would hate to be in those shoes, I think, and yet it's the best thing that ever happens to him. He realizes the ultimate prizes in life are not, are not wrestled for by human beings, but given by God. He realizes that God sits above all of this. And the other beautiful thing that he realizes, the lifesaver for him, is he realizes that he's just a bloke. As he meets God, as he's forced to consider that he's been fishing all night, can't catch a thing, and Jesus can come along and make it come out of the sea, he realizes that he's just a bloke and there is a God above all of these things. And he couldn't learn this lesson too soon. Humans, in light of the fall, we break, we bend, we ache, we suffer, we reach our limits and Peter learns this. And learns that he's got a God who sits above all of this. He learns that he's just a human and he and he I don't know I don't it doesn't tell us if he had a good night's sleep that night. He didn't have a night's sleep the night before, but I would imagine Peter went to his bed and was just like I don't have to try and be Superman anymore. Doesn't mean that I don't work hard. Doesn't mean that I try not to be the best fisherman that I can be. But I know that there will be moments in my life. And we have this. Where we will reach our limits. Where life will literally be too much. And Peter has this revelation. That maybe we haven't all had yet. Maybe, we, maybe it's coming. I don't know. That God sits above all this. And he has the best night's sleep. The most peace he's ever had. Because he realizes he's just a man. He's just a bloke. He's going to break, but there is a God who is awesome and above all of these things. One of the paradoxes, I think, of human life, of human progress, is that we've had, we've had like amazing progress. The last, last couple of hundred years, yes, like it's, the graph's gone like that, hasn't it? The last 20 or 30 years, it's just gone through the roof, hasn't it? We can do, like we can do everything with a, with a phone. There's no part of your house that can't be cleaned by a machine now pretty much, I can't think of anywhere, that a machine can't just do it for you. We've got, we've got everything. We've had this incredible boom of human progress. We've, we've, we've had the benefit of years of democracy where we've created law after law, you know, legislation to make our lives better and better and better, and yet it's an incredible paradox. We've, we've not got any more peace. You couldn't make a case to say, despite all this enormous progress, that we've got more peace. In our souls. In fact, you could probably make a better case to say we're more restless than ever, and the rat race of human life would say to us, "Okay, so so you're not getting any peace. Just work a bit harder. Just try a bit harder. Just undercut somebody a bit more. Just do a bit more." And God would tell us to: the one thing you've got to learn is to remember that you're a dusty created from dust will return to dust your body. You are a dusty human being who needs to lean on his God. Jesus has shaped us to thrive, I think, in the rat race. If we see others, see the need in others, and we dare to look at ourselves. Maybe you're listening to this Maybe you listen to this, and you don't buy it, and you think, Jesus said some really nice stuff. I appreciate that, Ash. That's nice to think about. Cheers for that. But I live in the rat race. That's the real world. I really need to, Monday morning, I'm gonna have to get back on it, and I wanna be focused on being back on it, so I need to park some of what you've said. Ask, ask, if if your head's in that spot, ask yourself this question. What do you think the world really needs now what do you think the world needs to get it through do you think it needs us to work harder do you think it needs more innovation do you think it needs us to be better legislation do you think we need to graft it out a little bit more or do you think we need to see people more do you think that would be better for the world if we all stopped and remembered that we were created creatures if we could look across the poverty lines and the shorelines and see people. If we were able to stop and look at ourselves and see ourselves as we are. And then ask yourself, because I think there's only one answer to that question. Ask yourself, who offers that kind of life? Who's offering that? Who's out there making that claim? Which of the politicians are saying that? There's only one person really able to deliver that. There's only one person really shouting about that. It's Jesus. He offers that. He says, look at others. Jesus often keeps it really simple, and he often makes it with just two points. It'd be so much better if preachers like me did that more of the time. He says, just look at other people and see the need for salvation in them. See the need in them and look at yourselves and know know the limits of yourself and know that there's a God without any limits.